innocent and the not so innocent. <laughs> this couple is for counseling. There's lots of control and anger issues. This one day, and this is kind of how they ended up in my office years ago, one day ended up with her throwing a frying pan at him, missing and breaking a kitchen window, for which she then blamed him for breaking. Well, he sucks. <laughs> tells me his wife is not interested in physical intimacy. Now, I, I know this guy very well. And he literally treats his wife as if she is a slave. Demands she do this, demands she do that. He even had this finger snapping thing where he would look at her and he'd go, and it meant to get him something to drink, he'd go, and it meant to get him something to eat, and if he went, it meant she could rest now. You think I'm joking. This really happened. So, that was a different guy. He probably should have been here. <laughs> Husband is told by the deacons at a church to get his wife under control because she asked questions and talked to the pastor. Yes, that was my his wife wants him to be in a wedding that he absolutely does not want to be a part of. He cannot understand why she won't tell her mother that he doesn't want to be in this wedding. And he accuses her of loving her mother more than him. She doesn't understand why he won't just do this for her. How in the world do people who love each other end up in such a mess? Stay tuned. We have an answer for that. <laughs> now remember, we, we talked already about the four purposes of marriage. Companionship, right? Not good to be alone. Nurturing children. A healthy context for physical intimacy. And spiritually modeling Jesus' love for his bride, the church. Those are the four main purposes of marriage in the Bible. Now, as my stories, you know, indicate, and I can tell you a hundred more, and I bet you everybody knows a bunch of stories like that, the things they've heard or seen. The original perfect companionship of the first marriage is no longer as harmonious as we would like. It is not as harmonious as we would hope when we say, I do, at the altar. I mean, nobody goes into marriage looking for conflict and standing at the altar and thinking, man, I cannot wait to have a fight with this person. <laughs> WWE honeymoon. <laughs> Nobody goes looking for that. But you know what? We all eventually find it. Hopefully not to you know, the degree of some of those folks. I mean, what happened? How did the perfect partnership in the garden end up with flying fryer pan, frying pans in the kitchen? Well, we're going to talk about the fall of marriage. Because when sin entered and the fall took place, marriage is another thing that fell. Now, you recall the story, right? Genesis 3, 
God's got Adam and Eve in the garden, and he's like, hey, look at all these sweet trees. Help yourself. Except for this one. You can have whatever tree you want, except this one. And of course, in comes the, the serpent of old, as Jesus calls him, right? The devil. Give her the, the hash. He says to the woman, God said you can't eat any trees, huh? She eats some, she gives Adam some. They eat. The Bible says their eyes were open. Yeah, they're like God. They, they understand good and evil now. And that they were on the evil side. And so they kind of freak out and they realize that they're, they're naked there in the garden. And so, uh, you know, they go hide and God comes looking for them. And God's kind of, God's already knows what happens. But he's kind of playing it up. He's like, uh, yo. Where you be? They're like, oh, we're hiding because we're naked. God's like, mm, yeah, who told you that? What do you know about naked? Well, that's what it is, huh? And of course, they confess what they've done, and we get to Gen the second half of Genesis 3, and God says, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. Serpent, yeah, here, get your head squashed. And then we get to verse 16. And this is the verse I want, I want to zoom in on. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. One that matters for marriage is verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's the second part of that verse that really matters. It says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What in the world is going on with that? Now, if you want to understand this verse, and what's really going on there, we need to go to the other place in Scripture where the same phrasing using the same words occurs. The, this idea of desire shall be con The word in Hebrew there only occurs two places in the entire Scripture. It occurs here, and it occurs in the next chapter, in chapter 4, as God is explaining to Cain why he's in danger of doing something very bad. So remember, we get to chapter 4, and Cain and Abel are each going to make a sacrifice, and Abel makes a proper sacrifice, and Cain doesn't, and Abel's is accepted, and Cain's isn't, and God's like, eh, dude, you done messed up. And God's talking to him about it, and he says this in chapter 4, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? No, right? That's right. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Hmm. Doesn't that sound very similar to what we just read in chapter 3? For Cain, we can understand very clearly here, sin desires him to do things he should not do. And God tells him he must rule over it. He's got to 
take control over it. You've got to stop the sin and you've got to control it. Don't do it, Cain. God already knows what he's planning. Don't do it. It's going to go bad. Don't do it. Sin, sin's trying to get you to do something bad. You need to control it. You need to rule over it. You need to take over it. Now let's go back to chapter 3 and see how what happened here with marriage, how, how it's happened. Now, now the second part of chapter 3, you notice, is not God doing something. It's him explaining the results of what sin had done. Now his doing something there is the bearing of children would be more difficult. Sorry, ladies. She looks him in the eye and she says, fine. Now, most guys know what fine that means. <laughs> it means the next syllables coming out of your mouth could mean life or death. Be very careful. Fine is like danger for a little while. Remember that. But Ivan, he just says, oh, great. See you after 18, bye. Off the door he goes. He apparently did not get the memo on what fine means. <laughs> then he wonders when he comes home why Hildegard is less than happy with him. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, he should care about her desires and trimming the bushes is more important. I mean, that's an important project. Anyone gets you crazy and gets hard to trim. You know, maybe. 
care more about it. And maybe some other people are, are out there thinking, well, you know, maybe he worked hard all week to provide for his family, and he just wants a little R&R, &R, and she should be more understanding if they want to go hang with his friends for a few hours and play some golf. And you know what? Neither of you, which whatever one of those two you're thinking, are wrong. Those are both possible ways to look at this. And this scenario plays out a million times a day in millions of marriages around the world. Each person desires something, he wants what he wants, she wants what she wants, and conflict is the result. And over the course of years, a hundred little conflicts create a hundred little cracks in the partnership of marriage. Now this can play out a lot of ways, okay? Especially depending on how your family of origin handled conflict. So you got one partner and they grew up in a family that just had loud conversations. It was, it was no big deal, it was just the way they were, right? You know, there was conversation, it was loud. It was, seeing an overbearing parent rule over a much meeker parent. That marriage is primed for conflict because you got one that doesn't think nothing about, you know, exercising the nuclear option on a regular basis, and the other one's just used to going, oh. or, say, the gal grows up in a household where the dad made all the decisions, but she marries a guy where his mom ruled the roost. How's that going to play out? Everybody's going to be like, I don't know what to do. You see, sin has created a situation where each partner in the marriage has certain desires and expectations and will use a variety of sinful tactics to try to meet those desires and expectations. When that happens, the other spouse will retaliate or hold a grudge or just fall into some sort of dissatisfaction, whatever it is, but it creates a spiral of marital dissatisfaction. And then a corollary on top of this is if that's not tough enough to add a little fuel to the fire, is when one spouse has issues with some other part of their life and they end up projecting those issues into their marriage. So a guy's unhappy with his job, right? He brings that home and he takes it out of the budget. That never happens. No, for sure. Woman thinks she's failing as a mother. And let me tell you, culture and social media are putting a ridiculous amount of pressure on mothers to be a certain way. They don't tell you which certain way, because depending on which way you look at it, this certain way or that certain way or that certain way or that certain way. But way, way too much pressure on moms. It's ridiculous. She blames her dissatisfaction with the children on her husband not being the father the way she thinks he should be. When in fact, she's really just unhappy with himself. And it's not just marriages. Happens in friendships all the time. One friend has super high expectations that their friend will spend all their free time with them, or that their friend will share every last thing with them. The other friend doesn't want to do that. So one friend tries to cajole or manipulate or just generally be a pain or whatever. Try to get what they want out of the relationship. And so desires and unmet expectations <clears throat> lead to all sorts of problems in every kind of relationship. Fortunately, Genesis 3 is not the last word on marriage or relationships. 
cross and in the resurrection is meant to reverse the curse of sin. We can see these curses reversed in the book of Romans. We're going to start, I'm going to read you three sections of Romans, <clears throat> starting in chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more as the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Romans 6.14, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now rather than try to drag you through some long, in-depth analysis of all this, let me just really quickly summarize the most salient parts of Romans 5 through 8 for you. Sin came into the world when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And ever since then, everyone, everything has been corrupted by sin and subject to death, which of course includes relationships and especially marriage. But this we already know. Jesus came, and through his obedience to dying on the cross in our place, has made it possible for people to become righteous. He's broken the curse of sin and death, where once sin was the master, now grace, through Jesus, has freed us from sin's tyranny of control. <clears throat> because of this, sin is no longer the controlling factor for those who have trusted Jesus. Anyone who's trusted Jesus is no longer condemned and under the curse of sin and death, and is free to live differently, to live in a way that gives life is not according to the sinful patterns set in the garden. We've been set free from the curse. Now, outside of Jesus' redemption, sinners cannot help but sin. Now, that doesn't mean that every person is going to be as bad as they possibly can. But they are going to have no choice but to fall into sinful patterns and ways of acting. Sinners are going to sin. But for the redeemed, we can now choose otherwise. The grace of God makes it possible to choose otherwise. Which does not mean that we always will. But it does mean we have the ability to because of the grace extended to us through the work of Jesus. And in fact, we know, unless we consciously start to choose differently, even we, the redeemed, will still easily fall into sinful patterns and habits. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
we have a choice now. Another way to put this is just to simply say Jesus' work is undoing the curse. And since part of the curse is that marriage has been corrupted, for the believer, marriage can be redeemed through the work of Jesus. The curse is in the process of being reversed, and it will culminate someday in the new heavens and new earth, because everything then in the curse will be reversed, right? I mean, even the creation that's corrupted will be, that'll all be fixed. There's no earthquakes in the new heavens and new earth. No tsunamis. Even the creation, the physical evil will be gone. But in the meantime, even though it's not fully culminated, we have the power to resist the patterns of sinful relational habits that sin have created, and we can experience what I like to call marital redemption. Since sin is no longer our master, we can choose differently. Unfortunately, God does not leave us to figure out how to live that marital redemption. He's given us guidelines for practicing marital redemption in Ephesians 5, which I promised after last week that I would get back to because it's the passage that everybody loves. <laughs> how do you practice marital redemption? <clears throat> well, now we've seen how Genesis 3 is the context for what's gone wrong in marriage. And we, we see that Jesus has reversed the curse. He's in the process of reversing the curse through his work and his grace to us. Now we can look at Ephesians chapter 5, the passage that people love to hate, in light of Genesis chapter 3, what happened to marriage in the first place in sin, and in light of what Jesus has done in reversing the curse. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21. <clears throat> Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the same. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should also submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, people, every time they read this, they tend to notice a few things. About this passage. First, it starts with submitting to one another. But then, even though it starts with this submitting to one another, it only seems that the word submit is ever used to the wives after that. Now, third, hopefully, they also notice that it sets a high bar for husbands loving wives. Okay. We can all agree that those things exist in that passage. <clears throat> but if we see this passage in light of the fall, what happened to marriage, it makes a lot more sense what Paul says here. <clears throat> now understand that whenever you see the word submit or submitting here, 
The idea is putting the other before yourself. Literally, in Greek, it means to line up. And we probably already knew that the word used here, agape, for love, right? We've heard that word, love word, really means to see the other as more important than yourself, or to put the other person's needs ahead of your own, right? Jesus is obviously, the, the, of course, the model of that love because he gave himself in death for us because we needed redemption that we couldn't have otherwise. And so his sacrifice becomes the model of all love, and especially marital love. Okay, so keep that in mind. Submit has to do with line up or, or put the other person before yourself. And love here has the idea of putting the other person's needs before yourself. Now remember, what were the effects of sin on marriage in Genesis 3? The wife will try to oppose and control, and the husband will try to rule and control. Everyone's trying to be in charge. Everyone's trying to control. Paul tells the wives to submit because the curse causes the wife to desire to control and rule over the husband. Paul tells the husbands to love their wives like Jesus loves because it is their desire to control and rule over their wives. He's giving instruction based on this idea of practical redemption practical marital redemption. Since Christ makes it possible for us to be different, here's how to be different. We can pretty much sum up both of the submit and loves here, that whole teaching simply as put your partner first. In everything, put your partner, their needs, their desires, their person before your own. And in fact, if you think about it, this is pretty much the very similar to what Paul writes in Philippians 2 as applying to all relationships, right? What you say in that passage? In Philippians 2, you know, put others' needs ahead of your own. Worry about, uh, worry about other people's needs. Don't always put yourself first. And if you aren't real familiar with that, everybody needs to read Philippians 2 on a regular basis because it's a very important passage. Okay, so that's the idea. The whole, the, whole, the whole teaching of the loving and submitting can all, can all be summed up as put your partner first. So now you're reading that, and the guys are particularly thinking about that part in the middle, Christ is the head, and the husband is the head, right? They were the guys really like that. That's what the fellow said. Yeah, I'm in charge. <laughs> Woman, you're going to do what I say because I'm not in charge here. Yeah. Survey says, and you got to see that in light of Jesus' teaching on headship or leadership. How does Jesus himself describe what it means to be the leader or the head? Well, one place we can go to that, besides the fact that in the Ephesians 5 passage itself, it talks about him giving himself up for the church. That's the definition. Look at what Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 27 says. It says his disciples come to him, right? And they're like all wanting to be in charge. And you talk about, the disciples really, you talk about conflict. They were like a bunch of old married people. Okay? They're always vying for who's largely in charge. Right? Well, I 
my Lord Jesus, where you they, they got their moms coming to Jesus. Right? I mean, come on, you got your mom coming to Jesus. <laughs> oh, grant that my sons, when they get in the kingdom, can sit at your right and left hand. And Jesus is like, oh, mom, chill. It's it's not it's really not for me to grant that anyway. And, and honestly, you guys think you can do what I can do? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, they, they have. They, they just didn't know that. They figured it out. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you, whoever would be the leader, whoever would be in charge, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. idea, submit in love. That's what it means to be, to be the head, to be the servant, put the other's needs first. Husbands, be a servant to your wives. Put her first. The entire teaching of Ephesians 5 can pretty much be summed up as put the other person first in your marriage. Now, this is one of those things that sounds simple, right? That, well, that, that sounds pretty simple. I, yeah. But it's really hard. You know why it's really hard? Because my three favorite people are me, myself, and I. It's not that I don't love Jen. Does anybody think I don't love my wife? In fact, you know what's really weird is in the last like week and a half, we had several people like just randomly say things to us like, I can just really tell your wife loves you. Or like, you two are just, uh, we were Jen was in to, to see a, a medical person and, 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 and the, she, 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 she says to me later, the, the medical person, she said, I can just tell you two really just, just really love each other. So it's not, it's not that I don't love Jen. But sometimes, in fact, probably most of the time, I just love myself more. I really like myself. Sometimes I stand looking in the mirror going, bro, yeah, right? Okay, it's not that bad. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Although I have to admit, after the doctor took that stupid bump off my head, the next morning when I woke up and looked in the mirror, I had to do a double take. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right, you took that off. You're right? But no, of course not. <coughs> not that I don't love my wife, it's not that I don't love Jesus, but sometimes, and like I said, dare I say most of the time, I just love myself more. And that's pretty much true of all of us. And add to that, in modern times, not only do we have that working against us, we often have both spouses pursuing careers, which is biblical, mind you. Okay? All right? It's biblical. Don't let anybody tell you that it is a biblical demand that the wife has to stay home. Just read Proverbs 31, right? Okay? That woman. I don't know when she slept. Not only is she a homemaker and a mother and a wife to her husband, right? 
But you read that Proverbs 31, man, she is a hardcore business person. She got all sorts of business dealings going on. She's something else. Okay. We got that. Then we got kids going a hundred different ways and places, right? This one's got to get to sports, and this one's got to get to music, and this one's got to do this, and this one's got to do that. And we got friends and families, they, they want our time, and we got our own hobbies and interests, and we have our own needs. And there's so many desires and so many expectations, and they're all playing against one another, and I just really love myself. Even though I also love myself. And into that, Jesus says, put the other person first in your marriage. And I can tell you, when both people do this, I cannot even describe for you the magic that happens. When I seek to put Jen's needs above my own and she puts my needs above her own, guess what? Everybody has a better chance of getting what they need out of marriage. Because she's more concerned with me than she's concerned with herself, and I'm more concerned with her than I'm concerned with myself. Everybody's got somebody else looking out for them. So I'm arguing this morning that the primary biblical instruction on marriage in light of Jesus' redemptive work is simply put your spouse first. <coughs> Everything else falls into place when you both do that. But it's hard. And it takes discipline, and it takes prayer, and it takes a lot of help from God. But it can be done. So let's go back to Ivan and Hildegard. I were wondering what happened with Ivan and Hildegard, right? Ivan, 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 yeah. Hildegard? No. What should they have done? Well, you know, I can think of several possibilities. Maybe you can think of several possibilities of how they could have worked that out. Well, I'm going to invite you to spend some time thinking about that. And we'll discuss it the next time I'm in the now next week, we are going to be blessed to have Dan Andrews, our regional minister, here speaking. Um, but after that, we'll talk about how uh, they, Ivan and Hildegard, and any of us, could apply practical marital redemption. As we go through a whole bunch of the implications and practical ways that that can play out for every one of our families. Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad that even though marriage was made very difficult because of sin entering the world. And we acknowledge, Lord, that marriage can be tough sometimes. But that through Jesus' redemptive work, there is now marital redemption. And really, it, it boils down to putting our spouses first. Sounds so simple. It is so hard. But we also know we can do it power of the Spirit, and through the guidance of your word, and through the love that is in our hearts.